finally made it to Matthew chapter 16 after about three years. That's not a joke. Every now and then I go back and I look, Miss Glenda, when I started this, uh, or we started this journey that you have been so kind to let me continue on with through Matthew. And I think, hmm, when I started this, I was about half the man I am now. I had a whole different wardrobe. I still got it. It's in the closet. I just ain't felt it out lately. So, thanks. Those of you that are at home, somebody just amen. They said, amen, fat boy. They didn't say that out loud, but I discerned in my spirit what was really meant. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, let's go ahead and pray and let's get started. Father, I want to thank you so much for this evening. And Lord, I just pray that, uh, that you'll do what you want to do, Father God. I, I'm, I'm not the most skilled at, uh, really anything I try to do, but definitely not this, Lord. I don't, I know I don't do it justice. But I, I just really wish that you would move on our hearts tonight, Father. I pray that by your spirit you would break our hearts where we need to be broken, that you'd edify us where we need to be edified, God. I pray that you would show us the path to assurance and to, to peace in Christ. Father God, if anybody doesn't really know you um, as, as their Father, if they don't know Christ as their Lord and their Savior, Father, I'm just asking, Father, I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you, please move on hearts tonight and bring people to, um, to a, a, a relational salvation with Christ Jesus uh, because, Lord, we need Him. We need Him desperately. And I want to thank you for the Bible. I want to thank you for, for speaking to us through Scripture through our highs and through our lows. You're faithful, Father. You're faithful to reveal yourself. And I pray that we'd be uh, able to see you and hear you and discern the truth about who you are and respond with faith and repentance tonight, Lord. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Matthew 16, uh, we, we read, starting in verse 1, Matthew writes, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Uh, usually, I, I, I've been trying to give a little, you know, funny story or something to kind of start in with, because I know otherwise I'm probably boring, so I give you something good at the beginning. But for time's sake, I'm not going to do that tonight. I just want to get right into it. And this statement that we read really kind of ought to spark our mentality a little bit. It's intriguing that these men would ask Jesus for a sign from heaven. And I think we should ask what kind of sign they're really looking for. It, it seems, as I've studied this and I've looked at it, it seems that really what these guys were looking for is the same kind of sign that I think the entire world wants to see. And they asked for it for the same reason that so many in the world today seem to ask basically the same question. They might ask in different ways, might ask in different contexts, but it's basically the same question and it's basically the same motivations behind the question, not for all, but for many. These men came to Jesus, but if you really look closely in the text, they did not come genuinely. They came in pretense. Matthew lets us know that these men asked Jesus for a sign from heaven 
to test him. Now the uh, the word for test here means to scrutinize or to tempt in the effort to find fault, presumably. These men uh, wanted to wanted Jesus to do something, wanted them to give wanted him to give them a sign so they could use that as an opportunity to test Jesus, to scrutinize him, to tempt him, maybe to get into the flesh, maybe to do something wrong, maybe to violate the law of Moses, or maybe to um, you know give them an opportunity to show him as a fraud. It was not because Jesus had not already demonstrated an abundance of attesting miracles and works that they asked for a sign. He had over and over and over and over and over. It was because they had already seen the signs that he had performed. And rather than surrendering to the demonstrated truth that was plainly set before him, before them, they wanted to reject it. They wanted to discredit it, and they wanted to exalt their own agenda above the works and thereby above Christ himself. And so many in the world today claim to be in search of truth. If you, if you really, uh, if you get on YouTube and you just get on there and you start kind of looking at, you know, people having intellectual debates about the hard-hitting questions of life, right? You can, you can look in just about every continent. You can look in just about every uh, language. You can look at all different schools of thought. And there are just myriads of people out there that are basically going after one thing. They all claim to be in the pursuit of truth. And mankind has really always been in the pursuit of truth, haven't they? You can look back throughout world history and you see so many groups. Look back at the Greeks. Look back at um, you know, the, the Romans. Look back at the intellectuals of every single uh, era and every single um, you know, civilization. And you're going to see um, large numbers of people who seem to be in pursuit of one thing above all else, and that is truth. But when you get to the heart of the matter... Their pursuit of truth really looks a lot like the same pursuit that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were engaging in here. Most people don't really want truth. That's just a cold, hard fact. I say this kind of hesitantly, but if I don't get into politics and all that kind of stuff because I don't think that way and I'm not smart enough to understand most of it. But... If you look at just the politics of the day, you'll get the idea that people don't really value truth, do they? It's not really about what really happens or don't happen or what somebody really believes or doesn't believe. It's about perception and it's about what you want to believe, right? It's about every, everybody has their own agenda. And what do they want the truth to do? Do they want the truth to challenge their agenda or their belief patterns and get them on the right track? Or do they want the truth to bend to what they've already decided they believe and what they're already settled on being comfortable with. It's the latter. The, the nature of mankind is not really to want truth. It's to want truth to bend to our will. And that was the situation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They didn't really want to know who Jesus was. They already knew. The point was that they didn't like it. They didn't like the truth and they were trying to discredit what they already knew to be true. So that what they believed and what they wanted to be true, they could promote as being superior. And they could live with the lives they had already planned out for themselves and not really have to change anything. 
Jesus points out the hypocrisy and blindness of these men when he says to them, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Now, supposedly, um, just put it in context, the rabbis were supposedly masters of predicting the weather patterns using the skies. They were masters, if you remember several years ago, um, not in this study, but we talked about um, the, the Jewish calendar that was based on the moon. I told you about how the... Uh, the Jewish elders are so masterful, even before we came up with telescopes and such, to understand the moon phases, know what the moon was going to be doing, know when it was a new moon, and all that kind of stuff. Because their whole religious system, if you know about the festivals, based off of the moon phases, right? If you missed it by one day, you were thereby in contradiction to the law in all of your practices. So they were intense about this, and they studied the skies with precision and fervency, and they... they, they prided themselves on being able to kind of depict, or, or not depict, predict, excuse me, the weather patterns based on what they saw in the morning sky and the evening sky and all throughout the day. Um, Jesus' point, though, is that as obvious and glaring as the foreboding sky above our head is, equally obvious was the evidence that he is the Messiah. I mean, if you go outside and you look up in the sky, how obvious is it to see what's there? It's not hiding from you, is it? We can't see it in here because we're in this building. All you got to do is walk out the door and it is plainly there. You can't hide it. It's massive. If rain clouds are coming over, you see them. If stars are out, you see them. If the sun's glaring, you see it and you feel it. Why? Because it is overwhelmingly obvious to anybody who would just perchance look up and see it, right? That's Jesus' point especially for these masters of the Old Testament prophecies, it was no easier to miss the proof that Jesus is the Messiah by His attesting works and miracles than it is to miss the sky above us. If you don't see it, it's not because the proof is hidden. It's because you don't want to see what is plainly there. So why did these men not want to see the truth that was in front of them? Jesus tells us it's because of their inability. It's because of their inability. They couldn't want to see Him for who He is. Now that's not an unheard of, that's not, that's not an isolated incident, biblically speaking. We see this condition of the human heart addressed several times, especially in the New Testament. One reference that many here will be really familiar with, is found in 2 Corinthians 4, in verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God, little g, of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, of course, when Paul says the God of this world, it's a reference to Satan who's been granted a certain amount of power during this time or during this age for the purpose of deceiving people and thereby deceiving nations. The question is, how does Satan blind people to the truth of who Christ is? How does Satan blind people to the truth of who Christ is? Well, here's one thing he can't do. He can't cover up God. He can't cover God up. Can you imagine? I want you to get in your mind. God is sitting here in His infinite capacity. What 
bed sheet is Satan going to find? What tarp is he going to construct to throw it over God? He can't cover up God. There is no way. In fact, in Romans 1, it tells us that all men have plainly seen the proof of God in the same way that Jesus references the obvious proof of his identity through nature. Jesus said, you can see the sky, you should be able to see the spiritual truth that's right in front of you. He says the same thing in Romans 1, in verse 19, it says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Ever since the creation of this physical world that mankind lives and breathes and moves on, we have been plainly seeing the demonstrated proof of God's existence and His character and His nature. Ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Nobody can say, I did not see the proof of God. Because it's everywhere. It's literally all around us. Look around you now. You are in a room full of people who are startlingly different than everything else in creation. You're not like dogs. You're not like horses. You're not like water. You're not like any of these things. You are mankind made in the image of the Creator God. You sitting in that chair are the most resounding proof of a very personal God who's created everything. Speaking of nature, Satan can't cover up God. So, he does the only thing he can do. Satan knows that we are naturally prone by our nature to want everything other than God. In fact, he knows that mankind, by our very nature, detests God. Some people will hear me say that and they'll be like, no, that's not true. I don't hate God. You know, I don't, you know, I've heard some atheists say, well, how can I hate something I don't believe in and all that kind of stuff? Fight awful hard to try to prove to themselves and everybody else that God doesn't exist. If it doesn't exist, you don't have to fight that hard to prove it. But Jesus declares that mankind on his own in his unregenerate state hates God. Very quickly, I'll prove it. In John 9.15, he says, I am the light of the world. And the Apostle John reiterates this proof in, or this truth in 1 John 1.5 when he says that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. So Jesus is light. God is light. And Jesus says in John 3.20, for everyone who does wicked things, does what? Hates, hates the light. And does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. To think that the unregenerate heart in mankind does not hate God is to be deceived to the utmost. Because we do. All Satan has to do to blind you and I from seeing the light of the truth of Christ's glory is to give us an excuse to not see what we really don't want to see anyway. All he's got to do is give us opportunity to not look at what we really don't want to turn our eyes and look at and we will not look. We'll focus on something else. 
He does this by keeping us distracted with the gilded trinkets of this life. And if you remember from Coach Kyle's history class, the gilded age, gilded means what? It means that there's something basically worthless wrapped in an outer layer of gold. Think of those little chocolate money candies that you used to get in kindergarten. Your teacher might give you that. You think, oh, I've got a gold coin. And you realize later that day the gold coin has melted out chocolate in your pocket. And it's just tin foil that looks gold on the outside. That's all Satan really offers. And we go for it, hook, line, and sinker, not because we're foolish, because we willfully want what he's got instead of what God offers and who God is. John says this in a warning saying, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, when you read that verse that I just read, and I know I've, I've read through it quickly, but I'm trying to make best use of our time. When you read through that and you really look carefully at what John's saying, we see in this warning not only that the things of the world are not from God, but also we see that to not love the things of the world and to love God instead is to do God's will. That's another way of saying that we please Him. We please God when we, do it, when we obey His will. We please God when we do not love the world or the things of the world, but instead we love God and we do His will and we abide in Him. Romans 8, of course, tells us, getting back to our original point, that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's not a statement of lack of desire as much as it is a statement of inability to desire. Inability to perform. The natural man cannot please God. He cannot love God. He cannot hate the lust of the world that blind him to God's glory. You can hate the fact that you might go to hell for it, but you can't hate the sin. You, I remember being lost. I remember knowing I was probably, I mean, I remember knowing in my brain, these things will send you to hell. I didn't want to go to hell, but I didn't really want to give up my sin either. You know what I wanted? If I'm being very honest, in my lost state, I wanted my sin and I wanted God to change his mind so that he didn't really get so upset about my sin so I could have my sin and not go to hell for it. I wanted the truth to bend to my will, not my will to be conformed to the truth. And I'm not alone. That's every human that's ever been born. The unregenerate man cannot choose Christ over his sin. And for all intents and purposes, the natural man, regardless of what he claims to be seeking, cannot truly seek God. We can seek all sorts of things. We can seek escape from hell. We can seek, you know, to get our, you know, our, our spouse back. We can seek to not have our kids go off and, and, and live in utter debauchery and ruin their life. We can seek not to have a habit that's going to cost us our job and our home and our life savings and all that kind of stuff. We can seek all that, but we can't really seek God as long as we're in our unregenerate state because we are in our nature adverse to God. I know that's a hard pill to swallow. And I know I'm getting a lot of hard looks, but that's still true. 
It's true for all of us. We were born that way. And unless God changes us, we remain that way. The unregenerate man or woman will always see the things of this world and this life as more glorious than the God who created it. Think about that a minute. You even have the opportunity to indulge in the wicked pleasures of sin only because God in His mercy decided to create you and give you life. And we choose those things that He hates over the one who gave us the opportunity to live and experience life, including, of course, the missteps of sin, unfortunately, but ultimately in the hope that we would come to know Him and enjoy Him. You and I were made to enjoy Him. He made you in His image and after His likeness so you would enjoy. You would be naturally, once your heart's regenerate, you'd be naturally drawn to Him and enjoy all who He is. All of His character, all of His nature, all of His power, all of His wisdom, all of His wrath, all of His ability, all of His holiness and His justice and His mercy and His pity. All of who He is, that's what we were created for. That's why Jesus says of these religious rulers who asked him for another sign, he says, an evil and adulterous generation seek for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now, before anybody gets real upset, it doesn't, I know a lot of people throughout the history of the church age have probably at some point in time in their seeking for Christ. They're seeking for salvation. They're seeking for... Maybe they go through a hard time and a a dear loved one dies or something and they're just having a hard time and they're praying that God gives them what? A sign. And pray that God makes a bird land on your windowsill because it was your dead spouse's favorite kind of bird and that's the sign that your your, your spouse or your loved one is okay. Or maybe your child has got leukemia and the prognosis is not good and in desperation after they prayed and that all they can do a desperate mom and dad bow down and they say Lord please give us a sign that it's going to be okay I don't fault you for that and Jesus I don't think is saying that if you ask for a specific sign out of your hurt and out of your need and out of your fear there that you're an evil or adulterous person spiritually that's not what he's saying at all It's not the asking for a sign that made these men evil and adulterous. It's that these men had already proven to be evil and spiritually adulterous because they were asking for another sign, not because they needed one to believe in who Jesus was, but because they wanted an opportunity to twist the evidence and discredit Him so they could keep believing what they had already settled on long before. When he says an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, what he's saying is these men are proving how evil and adulterous they really are in heart because they're asking for a sign for wicked, corrupt, twisted, perverted reasons. They don't want to believe. They want something they can use as fuel on the fire of their heart's hate for God. And when Jesus says no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, he is, of course, referring to his resurrection. But more than that, he's referring to judgment. I don't want us to miss this. If you look at the story of Jonah, when the prophet was vomited up by the great fish after three days in the depth, similar to the way Jesus would come from the tomb after three days, what was the result? What did Jonah do? Jonah went to Nineveh. 
to do as God had instructed him. And we read in Jonah 3, 4, it says, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Exclamation point. No altar call. No 47 verses of just as I am. No turn or burn, you heathen. 40 days and you're toast. That's it. In today's culture, he would have dropped the mic right there, I guess. Jonah's coming out of the fish produced a message of terrifying judgment against the city. For these men in our story or our text in Matthew 16, for these men who would reject Jesus as the Messiah, despite all their learning and all the overwhelmingly plentiful and obvious evidence of who Christ was and is, Jesus' resurrection from the grave would be the most massive pronouncement of God's judgment against them as long as they did not repent and believe the gospel. Can you imagine... If you had been one of the ones who, if you had been in that group of the Pharisees, just imagine for a minute that you had seen all the attesting works, you knew everything the prophets had written that the Messiah would come to do, the lame would leap, the dumb would speak, the mute would speak, the deaf would hear, the blind would see, and you saw Christ do this over and over and over, not to mention casting out demons and feeding 5,000 with some loaves and fishes, and again 4,000 as we talked about last time in chapter 15. You, you see this over and over and over, and eventually even raising the dead several times. You see this, you hear this. Jesus didn't do these things in a closet. He didn't do this quietly. It was public knowledge. According to the Jewish law, everything had to be affirmed by two or more witnesses. Jesus did all these things in front of tens or hundreds or thousands. There was no lack of legitimate legal witness to what he had done. You know who he is. You have no misgivings about who he is. And you still decide that he just doesn't jive with your theology and your ideology and your game plan. So you hand him over to be murdered, literally ripped to pieces by a pagan Roman government. And then three days later, he comes alive again under his own power. Can you imagine how terrifying that would have to be? You, nobody in history has ever been more on the wrong side of truth. Unfortunately, for many of them, they would not repent. The corruption that had grown and festered in their hearts would grow to irreversibly consume them. Paul warns of this condition. This happens to people. Paul warns that this is something that could happen. Again, in Romans 1, he says in verse, starting in verse 21, says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creatures things, verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. God gave them over to a debased, or some translations say a reprobate mind. This is a mind that has lost, this is a soul that has lost all capacity to even want to repent and walk in the truth. There is no more shred of even logical desire 
to turn to God and be saved from the wrath to come. And if God does this to people who continually and willfully reject the truth of who He is as it is demonstrated through nature, the question we have to pose is how much more will He do so to those who do the same to the neglect of the clear revelation of His glory through Jesus, God in flesh? How much more will people be in danger of that? And we see the fruit of this happening in Matthew 28 with these Pharisees and these Sadducees and these scribes that had continually done this uh, to Jesus and continually rejected who He was amidst the mountains of evidence. We see that Matthew lets us know that these were in fact turned over to a debased mind. And we see what that looks like in Matthew 28. If you remember the Pharisees when Jesus had died, they posted guards outside Jesus' tomb just in case somebody would come and try to steal His body away. And we see in verse 11 that after Jesus had risen from the dead and the disciples had come and they had seen the empty tomb and they were going back to tell the others, it says in verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. So the guards who were there and witnessed the resurrection, they went and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story is spread among the Jews to this day. That reprobate mind will lead you to do things that are totally illogical and insane. What kind of story is it that someone stole a body in my sleep? How do you know if you're asleep? That's not a joke. I'm just asking. I mean, even I can figure that out. Wait a minute. You were asleep? How do you know what happened? It didn't matter. All that mattered was covering up the truth, right? It doesn't matter how illogical it was. It doesn't matter how the truth was pressing them in the face. Their goal, having been given over to a reprobate mind, was to suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. So they could cling to what they loved the most, and it wasn't God. The desire to be the God of your own life, accountable to no power higher than yourself is innately in every single human being. However, because we're surrounded by so much plain evidence proving the existence of a transcendent God, excuse me, including nature and the Bible and the personal witness of the saints and so much more, because of that, we all at some point and to some degree have done what these men did. Again, Romans 1 tells us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Everybody here, to some degree, has heard the gospel. 
Everybody here, to some degree, I imagine, has heard the truth of sin and God's righteousness and judgment and holiness and Christ's atoning sacrifice and Him rising again from the dead and the fact that He rules over all creation right now and forever. And we, at some point and to some degree, suppressed the truth of that because we loved our unrighteousness and our unrighteousness had grown in us over time as we practiced sin leading to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, that had grown in us to consume us to the point where whenever we were addressed with the truth, the unrighteousness in us pounced on it and suppressed it, subdued it, held it down so that our wicked heart could not be affected and we would not be forced to change. That's what happened in me. That's what's happened in you. That's what's happened in everybody that's listening. That's what's happened to every single human on the planet, save Christ Jesus, at some point in time. And that only because He's the God-man. This is a character trait that is deeply seated within all of us. And over time, the more truth we are presented with, the more the proclivity to reject it and suppress it and pervert it and substitute it with something else that is comparatively worthless grows in us. It grows in us as we get better at doing it. Think about it. At one point in time before you came to Christ, you were really good at brushing aside the truth that you heard, right? Those of us that were raised in church but weren't always saved, we were really good at hearing a sermon, amening it, walking out and totally pushing it to the back of our mind and out the back door so that we could do what we wanted to do. Given enough time, that tendency will consume the entire lump of the dough of our lives. It grows like leaven. Spreads like leaven. And Jesus makes this startlingly excuse me, this startling truth clear to His disciples. After they parted ways with the Pharisees and Sadducees, we see that Jesus and the disciples went across the sea. In verse 5, when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. I was getting really nervous as Brother Tony was preaching this morning because he was talking about false teachers and and damnable heresies. And I thought just in any moment he was just going to pull my notes out and just start preaching it. We've done that last couple times. We've been really on page. It's almost like we're listening to the... Same God. Imagine that. We don't talk about this stuff. Tony's too cool for me. He doesn't talk to me. The disciples thought the same way that we usually think. Right here, you see it. They're thinking in the natural. Jesus gives a spiritual truth, and their minds instantly go to what? Their belly. Natural provision. I need this. I need to control this. 
I'm not going to make it about this that I should control. Because they didn't have a way of meeting their physical need of bread, they saw Jesus' warning merely in terms of physical food. What did Jesus say to them in response? This would sting, Cody, if Jesus, you know, God the Son, is standing right there after He's done all these miracles and you've helped and you've been a part of all those miracles. You were there for the Sermon on the Mount. You've seen dead people raised from the dead. You know who this is. And He says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And all of a sudden you start thinking about something so lowly as bread, especially right off the heels of Matthew 12. And Matthew 15, the major feedings there, would it not sting if the God of creation looked at you and said, Oh, you of little faith. That would send chills up our spine. But that's what he said. It was obvious where their attention was. I believe that's why he said it. They were worried about being able to meet their physical needs of provision while Jesus was right there with them. Jesus is here. And you're worried about bread. This is the same Jesus, as he points out, who had just recently fed 5,000 men and then again 4,000 men plus women and children in both instances. Some... Uh, some commentators believe that in the case of the 5,000, if you really take the math out, there was probably more like 20,000 people there. 5,000 men plus all the women and children that would have been there. But on these two separate occasions, he feeds these large groups. And Jesus had proven not only to be enough to meet their physical needs, but he had proven to be overwhelmingly more than enough. If you look at it, he specifically points to the excess of food that was left over at each of these miraculous events. If you look back, you see that when he was handed just five loaves and two small fish, he fed 5,000 men plus women and children. And what did he have left? If you look in the original text, you look at the actual word used, our translations read baskets, but in the, you know, for the word for baskets in chapter 12 and the word for baskets in chapter 15 are two different words. In chapter 12, where he fed the 5,000, they collected 12 enormous baskets, huge, full of food fragments left over, more than enough. And then when he fed the 4,000, he was given even more to work with. He was given seven loaves and a few small fish, and they collected seven lunch baskets. Think a picnic basket full of food left over. He produced enough food to feed both, but if you look at it, he produced more for the bigger crowd he had more left over after the bigger crowd when he had less to start with. Five loaves and a few fish, seven loaves and a few fish. He had more to feed the 4,000 with, less to feed the 5,000 with, more to feed here, fewer to feed here. He had ample left over each time, but he had overwhelmingly more here. When you put that all together, you see that this just highlights the truth that Jesus' ability to meet our needs has absolutely no dependence and no correlation whatsoever with anything to do with us. It doesn't matter how much we bring to the table. It doesn't matter how great our need is. He's not asking us for help. 
he does all that he pleases. And he does it perfectly. So the question he poses to his followers after reminding them of these great events they had witnessed and taken part in was, how is it that you failed to understand that I did not speak about bread? This was followed again by that warning, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. See, this tendency by even the disciples to be concerned with what they thought they needed to provide, even in the presence of Jesus, the great provider, shows how easy it is for us to eat the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees ourselves in our own lives. This, as the disciples finally realized, is a reference to the, like we said, the teachings of these religious rulers. Now, here's the deal. None of us in here are Palestinian Jews. None of us in here, um, you know, go and, well, the Jews don't even sacrifice animals anymore, but none of us in here are trying to live a life of devout Judaism, as far as I know. Most people in the world are probably not trying to live by the exact same teachings of these Pharisees and these Sadducees at this time in this place in history. So what does he really mean? What does it mean for us when he says... Don't live according to their teaching. Beware of their teaching. The question we should ask is, overwhelmingly, what is so wrong or what was so wrong with their teaching? And very quickly, I want to explain. First thing is, we, can't, we, we need to be careful before we start knocking the Pharisees and the Sadducees too much. There were some things you could not question these people about. They did not lack zeal. you got to give them that. They were way more zealous. Any of us, including the one talking, way more. Jesus even said this. He said in Matthew 23, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. They would go across the ocean. They would go to the outer reaches of the planet, so to speak, not to win a bunch of people to their religion. They would go in the hopes of just winning one. Now, I've been on a lot of mission trips. I'll be honest with you. When I leave my family for a week during, say, Christmas break, and I'm spending thousands of dollars to go, or the church spends thousands of dollars for us to go, and I'm going to go ride around in some, Joseph, hot and tight situation, in a Toyota or Nissan truck, in a place where there, excuse my English, ain't no road. There is a path, we think, through the desert. And Kyle, sometimes it rains. And you're supposed to get back to your family on a certain date. And the rain says no. Because again, there ain't no road. And you got a bunch of people trying to drive a school bus with goats tied to it. Like luggage. Up a hill like this. That is, at this point, pure mud. I'm not going in the hope of maybe... Just one guy will listen. I gotta build myself up. I gotta, you know, kinda get fired up a little bit like maybe this will be it. Miss Glenda, I know it's probably not, you know, cause I know who's going. 
But you got to kind of tell yourself, you talk yourself up. Like maybe this will be the time that it'll be like, you know, one of those Billy Graham crusades where, you know, like George Beverly Shea will come in and just start singing some song and all these people are, I mean, all of Haiti is going to come down and I won't understand nothing they're saying. I'm just going to trust the translator the best I can, although sometimes that gets diced. These guys would go for the hope of saving one. Well, saving one. Converting one. They were zealous. They were deeply knowledgeable. They seemed very moral, outwardly speaking. So what was so wrong with their teaching and how can we avoid it? Well, in short, they were tragically wrong because they failed to acknowledge the sufficiency of Christ Jesus for everything that they needed. Of course, as many as you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not see Jesus as the bread of life who alone can grant salvation. They thought they would find salvation in their own merit. We've talked about this before. They thought their religious practice would somehow tip the scales uh, on the day of judgment as their good deeds somehow outweighed their, ba- their bad deeds and God gave them the friendly nod because they had worked the equation out somehow. And this really, as we've said so many times before, is just the core of all man-made religion. And you can witness this type of ideology still um, consuming and destroying people all over the planet, everywhere from the Muslim who's trying to earn salvation through keeping the law, and to the good old boy who thinks he's going to be, he's right with the man upstairs because he's a good husband and father and he hadn't been to jail at least lately. It's not new. It's the same teaching. But that's not all. There's another form that this leaven, there's probably several forms this leaven can take, but for time I'm only going to talk about one or two. There's another form that I want to talk about that this kind of leaven, spiritual leaven, can take. There's this type of experientialism out there that values experience as the guarantee of salvation. And before you think that's too simple, that that can take a lot of different appearances. There are some in certain false circles that I won't name at this point who will say when you press them on biblical issues, when you take biblical texts and you press them on biblical truth, they will say that they are, they know they are saved because regardless of what the Bible says or does not say, they don't care. You can throw that out in the trash. They're saved because they have had some type of personal revelation from Jesus Christ. They've had some kind of experience where God spoke to them. Jesus um, revealed himself to them in a dream. They went to heaven in a dream and they saw their great-grandpa that they had never really seen before and it was him. And, um, and I've talked to these people and I've seen these people and, and they are so deceived. It doesn't matter what biblical truth is. It does not matter at all. It all takes second place to their experience. That is very dangerous. Very dangerous. There are some who think that they'll be found right with God because they've been in worship services where they experienced a great move of the Spirit. We talked about this before. One of the most dangerous things about some of the movements that you see today, like the New Apostolic Reformation and, and some of the charismatic movement and things like that, not, not so much the old, even the old school uh, Pentecostal lines that, that teach real the gospel and real repentance. They just have some fringe things that are questionable. But these, these movements that 
hold experiences so high above anything else. It's very easy to be in those circles and you can be living totally for the devil, but because these experiences are really conjured up, man-made, come from our own mind and from our own desires, people leave every time thinking they're right with the Lord when they've never met the Lord. These are, these are false. It's all based on experience. And some, this may be the most dangerous, I don't know, while they won't say it, they really believe that they're saved because of a choice they made. Now listen to the words I said. They believe they are saved because of a choice they made. Period. They believe nothing more than Jesus just made them savable. But they're the ones that really sealed the deal on their salvation because they made a choice and that was the determining factor to save them. If you believe that, you by definition don't really believe Jesus saved you. You believe that you helped save you. Jesus laid it out there and you were good enough and decent enough to pick it up. And if you hadn't done that, you'd go to hell. But because you did that, you're not. Now, I'm not saying this to make anybody tremble about their salvation. I'm not necessarily even saying that that in and of itself definitely 100% means that you're lost or saved or anything else. What I'm saying is this, if nothing else, that's a very scary place to be. Because if your salvation is based on your experience, all that's got to happen is for you to experience something else and all of a sudden you lose everything, right? You lose all peace, you lose all joy, you lose all confidence, you lose all desire, you lose all, you lose all passion, you lose everything. Because if it's founded on your experience, your experience is wishy-washy. Anybody ever had a good day at work before? The rest of y'all need to go to work more. I've got four people who had a good day at work. Anybody ever had a good day at work? Yes. Anybody ever had a bad day at work? Same work, same person, same boss, different experience. Joseph put every hand God gave him. Uh, yeah, I thought somebody kicked a field goal in the back row. All these, as well as other manifestations of the false leaven of religion, are potentially deadly. Because they blind us or they distract us from the true glory of who Jesus is. Our natural proclivity is to try to feed our spiritual need with natural bread. That which is formed by the worthless leaven of human will and wisdom and effort and experience. As we said earlier, the glory of Christ Jesus is on display for all of us to see. Again, he proves himself through nature. For as Coach Kyle said, or Brother Kyle said, I guess in this context. For by him all things were created. I mean, Paul said it first, but Kyle preached about it. He reveals himself through the church, for he is the head of the body, the church. He declares himself through the Bible, the prophetic word of God, because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of all prophecy. So the one we need is clearly before us and close to us, and as the minds of mankind continually ponder how they will not be left spiritually destitute and lacking. Jesus asks the same piercing question that he would ask his disciples in the next few verses. And this is the central question of eternity for you and me and every other man, woman, or child that's ever been born. No matter who you are or how you plan on settling with God on the coming day of judgment, how you answer this question will be the indicator of what your eternity looks like and consists of. We need to ask this question to ourselves tonight, and we need to ask it often, 
Because this question will shepherd us and prevent us from trying to fill our spiritual grocery sack through our own means. The question is found in verse 15 where Jesus so famously asks His disciples, But who do you say that I am? That is the central question to every human being of all time. Who do you say that I am? How you answer that question will determine the content not only of your eternity, but of your life now. What you believe about Jesus will dictate how you live. It will dictate how you react when you're confronted with your own sinfulness in the dead of the night. What you believe about Jesus will be the determining factor of what kind of spouse or parent or child you are. What kind of employee you are. What you do with your free time. Who you spend your time with. Who your true friends are. How you spend your money and every other part of your life. What you believe about Jesus will determine where you spend eternity, whether it be with Him in the joy of His presence or separated from Him in an eternal conscious torment. And the reason, as I close, is because He is the only one who can meet our truest need and thereby He's the only one who can meet all of our needs. Your truest need, whether you think it is or not, whether you feel like it is or not, that's irrelevant. Your truest need is to be relationally connected to the God who created you. We were created for His glory and we were created in His image for relationship with Him. Because we were made for Him, only He can satisfy us. But as we know, your sin and my sin has cut us off from God. And because of the pity of God, thankfully, Jesus left the throne of heaven to put on flesh and to live in the dust and the pain of this earth. He took full responsibility for all His people. He lived a life in our place doing what we needed Him to do and what the, and the only thing He really could do, be perfect. He could do nothing else but be perfect and that's exactly what we needed Him to do in our place because we could in no way be perfect. He then took the infinite wrath of God on the cross for every single one of your individual sins and my individual sins, both those that we know about and the ones that we have not even recognized yet. He took the full curse of God for you as He died and was buried in the tomb. And as He rose again from the dead, we see that He justified forever all of His people. Now, because of His work, God the Father delights in showing mercy to those who belong to Jesus. Because of His work and worth, the Holy Spirit delights in regenerating the hearts of and granting faith to Jesus' people. Because of Jesus' worth, His supplications for us are heard in the courts of heaven as God the Father hears God the Son who speaks your name. Because of the infinite nature of Jesus, your salvation is eternally 
secured and is not left to depend on the shifting tide of human effort or fervor. Because of Jesus, we will judge angels. Because of Jesus, we will hear, well done. Because of Jesus, we'll be resurrected to eternal life, never again to suffer the pains of sin and sickness and sorrow and hunger and loneliness or insecurity or fear or death. Because of Jesus' value, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We will be totally sanctified and sinless. And in the meantime, we fight our fight against the flesh, against the world, and against that ancient evil one, Satan himself, knowing that even on the days when the battle seems to be the most hopeless, no outcome other than total victory is even possible for us when it's all said and done. Because of Jesus... When the kids will not stop screaming, when the boss is a bully, when the government is corrupt, when the economy is down, when our body is broken, when our hope is low, when depression and anxiety beat on the door of our mind and emotions, and when the world seems to be falling apart around us, we can find a safe place to rest in the knowledge that God is working all of these things. Out for our good. As we ask the question, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him over for us all, how will He not with Him graciously give us all things? Because of our King Jesus, we will never hunger, but we will be eternally Satisfied just in knowing and enjoying Him as He forever proves to be the bread of life to us. So having said that, let no one boast in men. Don't boast in others. Don't boast in yourself. Don't boast in ideologies of men. Let no one boast in men. For all things, believer, are yours. It's already yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. Do you really think you can top all that by your merit? Think you can top all that by your experience or by your choice? You can't. I can't. You need to hear Jesus ask the question, but who do you say I am? And you need to ponder your answer. Test yourself to see what you're really counting on for the provision and satisfaction that you need both now and in eternity. Hear the warning and the promise offered in John 1, 10 through 13. And I'll pray and we'll close. Where John writes of Jesus, He was in the world and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name and gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray and we'll close. Father, I want to thank You for this evening. I, I know that this went long, Father, but... 
Lord, You're so good. And I want to thank You for all that Jesus is for us. Lord Jesus, we love You. And we don't love You the way we should. We don't honor You the way we should. We don't, we don't promote You and praise You the way we should. And I'm asking You, please, forgive us, Lord. Forgive us. We're weak. Lord, we are by nature backwards. Lord, I pray that You please forgive us. Just have mercy on us, Father God. And please help us be the, the members of the body, the members of the bride of Christ that we should be. What He came and died and rose again for us to be. Spotless and holy. And I pray that You would do that uh, in the hearts of every person that's here. I pray that You do that in the hearts of people that are listening abroad. Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't know Jesus, I just pray that You would move on their heart. Maybe in this moment, maybe in a moment to come in the next days, weeks, months, whatever. I pray that You would just move on their heart, Father. You'd break in on their life like You've done on so many of ours. And that You would change their heart and You would, you would, you would draw them, drag them to Yourself, Father God, through Your grace or by Your grace. I ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.